0: Amen. You may be seated. We are back in Luke today. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke uh, chapter 18, beginning in verse 35, or you have the text for today's message printed on page 10 in your bulletin. Let's hear the Lord's good word together. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, were supposed, they, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your Mina has made ten Minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your Mina has made five Minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone ha- who has, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, for you to really work in our hearts through this text today. In Jesus' good name, amen. I have wondered for a long time why it is in stories that the most interesting characters are very often the villains. You ever think about this? I mean, really, who's more interesting? Megatron or Optimus Prime? I mean, maybe if Optimus ends up as some sort of skeleton in his closet, now he's interesting. I watched The Blacklist for Raymond Reddington. No other reason. If Walter White had stayed a chemistry teacher, you think that thing would have run to five seasons? yawn. Villains make it interesting, don't they? And I think for most of us, if you think about why that is, it's not necessarily because the villains are actually evil. I mean, when you encounter evil like raw evil, it's actually horrifying. But I think what is attractive and interesting about villains is that they just come in and they break up all these tidy, predictable rules and boxes and boundaries. They just blow up the status quo they start redrawing all the lines that everyone's so comfortable with. They redefine what is okay, don't they? And in that way, a villain in a story starts to open up possibilities we just didn't think about before. And they operate villains in these shadows where everything is not transparently obvious. I mean, we know what the good guy's going to do. You know, we know what he, he, the good guys stand for. You're never sure with the bad guys. Well, in light of that, that I just spent a lot of time thinking about, it is striking to me how, throughout the Gospels, how often Jesus is vilified. He's made out to be a villain. And it's kind of, you know, there's truth in this. He does not come and bring a dull, quiet, placid peace, does he? He says, I've come to bring a sword. I'm going to rattle this whole cage a lot. Now, being God in the flesh, it's obvious that Jesus is the good guy, morally speaking. But he just comes in and he starts turning things upside down. And in fact, as you read through the Gospels, it is these wicked powers that oppose Jesus who come off as just boring. They're stale. They're they're predictably stuck in old ways, and in their narrative, they just want things to stay the way they are. In their narrative, Jesus is the villain. He's, you know, he's low-key. He, he's, the, he's the guy who's just, you know, the shapeshifter, shaking things up. And if you buy the narrative of these powers, Jesus really is a kind of villain. When, he, when this king brings the kingdom of God into this world, it is just not what we resp- it's not what we expect at all. Based on the usual way of the world, he shakes it all up. And we're seeing it again here. This is the end now, the final text. In this long journey, going all the way back to chapter 9, where Jesus has been on his way to the royal city, and you know that in that royal city, in a little while, he is going to basically drop depth charges (laughs) into the foundations of Satan's kingdom and all the earthly systems that serve Satan's kingdom. Jesus is going to drop just depth charges into all of that and really rock the world. He's not going to do that by violence. He's going to do it in a way that is totally unexpected by dying for sinners, dying for his enemies, but this is the end of the journey. They are at the gates of Jerusalem almost, and for the last time on this journey, there will be one more episode like this on the cross, but this is the last time on this journey that Jesus gives us a chance to just once again see the possibilities. (laughs) Remember, villains open up possibilities. They shake things up. Jesus shows us once again the possibilities that he opens up as he brings this upside-down kingdom of God into the world. Opportunities for inclusion, possibilities for inclusion, and possibilities for investment by those who are included. I just want to show you two things today. I want to talk a little bit about upside-down inclusions and upside-down investments. So we're going to start with the inclusions. Now, in case you have missed it (laughs) since Jesus' first sermon back in chapter 4, Remember that sermon at all in his own hometown of Nazareth? The Lord God has anointed me to what? Keep the status quo. You know, make sure the proud and the mighty stay in their, on their thrones. No, he has anointed me to come preach the good news of God to the poor and, and heal the sick and, and gather in the humble. He has come into this world bringing God's kingdom, and he's gathering into this kingdom. We've just seen this again and again. Not the great and the good, as we humans tend to measure these things, but the least and the worst. They're the people he's gathering. And you see it again here. It's very interesting that the final healing miracle in the Gospel of Luke is this blind man, the only blind person that Jesus has met in all of his uh, ministry, at least in Luke's Gospel. The only blind man, he's the last healing miracle. And it's interesting that it's blindness that comes last. Back in that sermon, Jesus said, I've come to open blind eyes. But it's interesting if you look at this blind man, What's so interesting about his blindness? Well, on one hand, you know, blindness is just one, one more of these debilitating miseries that Jesus has come to heal. Not so different maybe from just another, another misery like lameness or leprosy or whatever. But there's something specific about blindness I'd like you to notice. Because on the other hand, what stands out about this blind man, you could just say he's one more sufferer. But on the other hand, what really stands out is not just his need... There have been other needy people, not just his cry for relief, that makes sense. What really stands out is that this blind man sees, by grace, he sees what very, very few people in this throng of people around Jesus can see. What does this man call Jesus? This is the only time in the entire gospel anyone uses this description of Jesus. What does he cry out to him? Jesus, son of David that is some crazy vision because what he is saying that just if you're a Jew who know your scriptures that reverberates with okay we're thinking back to King David the great king who is the one promised to Abraham. And that king promised to Abraham goes all the way back to Genesis 3:15 where God said that this whole sin mess that Adam brought into the world and the fact that now the serpent has this destroying power over humanity, there's going to come one to crush that serpent's head and free us from all of that and it's just he gets it. This is the son of God walking by. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He sees it. He sees it in his blindness. The geography here is not accidental. Luke just kind of boggles my mind how the details because when you guys hear so he's Jesus is what approaching Jericho verse 35 when you hear Jericho what's the first thing you think of you kids if I say the the city of Jericho what's the first thing you think of you think of trumpets and walls falling down right Joshua marching around the battle of Jericho and the walls fall down and it's interesting at the start of this journey, so if you go back to the other end of the journey, when Jesus got, got going toward Jerusalem, back in chapter 10, at the start of the journey, he took these 72, this kind of symbol of an entire nation, and he sent those 72 to invade the land of Israel with the gospel of the kingdom. And it was a crazy time because as they went out preaching the good news of Jesus as the king, demons are fleeing. And when they get back and they're all excited about all of this and Jesus is talking with them, Jesus says, yes, I was kind of watching this and I saw Satan fall. The kingdom of Satan is falling. These great towers of the powers of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, they're starting to fall. And so there was this conquest imagery way back at the beginning of the journey. And now at the other end of the journey, we come to Jericho of all places. And if you think back to Jericho, the first city that Israel conquered back in that original conquest, way back under the first Joshua. In that city, there was one social outsider. One social outsider, much like this blind man is an outsider. And she saw what was really going on. She saw that in the approach of these Israelite armies, the living and true God was coming to take the land of Canaan as his own. She was a prostitute, but had such spiritual vision that she was delivered from the destruction of Jerusalem and became the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother great great, 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 great of, yes, King David, and of this son of David who is standing before this blind man now. And just like that here, this unlikely outcast of this social strata of the time he knows like rahab knew this is the kingdom of god coming he knows this this the kingdom of god the kingdom of the living god is passing by me right now and he just he just shouts out his faith and and his absolutely irrepressible desire that this king whom he knows is the king have mercy upon me and he just won't shut up it's interesting back some time ago in the gospel when demons tried to identify who jesus is jesus rebuked them and told them to be silent now the crowds trying to get this guy stop be quiet. Stop yelling. He will not. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He, it's irrepressible faith. I, I, I know who you are. Show your mercy to me. And Jesus stops, and he, he calls him over, and it's amazing. When Jesus asks, well, what mercy do you want? And the man says that I could receive my sight. I can hear the laughter in Jesus' voice. Your faith has already made you well, son. See with your eyes what your faith already sees. You know who I am. Now see me face to face. Because this, this man, he's not just a benefit taker. Oh, lots of people want the benefits of Jesus. This man is a believer. He believes in this Messiah, this Savior, this one who is here to do far more than open blind eyes. He is here to save the world. And as such, though he may be the least in the throng, he is a son of the kingdom of God and an heir of the kingdom of God, and he glorifies God before the crowd. This is an upside-down inclusion if there ever was one. It gets crazier, though, because Jesus moves on inside of Jericho, and we meet another outcast, a bit more like Rahab, perhaps, in a way. Unlike the blind man who is at the bottom of the social ladder, a helpless blind man with nothing to do but beg, this outcast is a person of immense wealth he is actually very up on the social ladder he has immense status he is in a position of tremendous power he can bring people to their knees really given he works for the occupying force of rome and is pretty much free to extort people and abuse his position of tax collecting for to line his own pockets which he has and he's a chief tax collector, which means he's not, only a, he's not only this kind of scum, if I can put it that way, but he, he's got a team of scum around him. He runs like a, you know, a racket of this. And so he's not the sort of person you really expect to be a Jesus follower. And in verse 3, we're told that it's interesting in light of what we just heard with the blind man, he is seeking to see who Jesus is. So you have sight, a sight thing here again. He wants to see who Jesus is. You know, maybe he's just heard rumors. This guy, you know, some weird things happen when Jesus comes. And so unlike the blind man, there's no evidence here that he is anything more than curious and quite clueless. But he's at least curious. And so he, you know, he hears Jesus coming by. And, and so he wants to see, you know, let's check this out. And, you know, he's short, apparently, and so he can't really see over the crowd. And you can imagine if, you know, the the guy behind you is a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and he wants to push past you to see what's going on, you kind of give him an elbow in the jaw and tell him to get to the back of the line because you don't like him one bit. And so he finally has to climb a tree. And he finally gets up, and he's, you know, I imagine him being kind of a spunky fellow, and he's kind of looking to see what's going on, curiosity about who this Jesus is. And then there's this moment. There's this moment in this proud corrupt man's life, I think it would have frozen his blood. You know, this has unfortunately been kind of ruined by children's stories. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. No. Think about this. He's up in this tree, and he's just trying to see what's going on, curiosity, and I think there was a moment that absolutely froze his blood. Because, you know, he's just looking as you look at a spectacle, and all of a sudden, this Jesus figure walks to right in front of the a sycamore tree, and suddenly, without warning, you ever see those moments in a movie when all of a sudden some character just looks directly at the camera, and you feel like they're looking into your soul, and you kind of this weird chill that goes down your spine? All of a sudden, Jesus, I mean, there's a crowd. It's noisy. There's lots going on. Basically, I mean, you know, he's up in a tree. He's like behind all the leaves and branches. He's invisible. All of a sudden, Jesus stops, and he looks directly at the tree, and he looks directly into Zacchaeus' eyes. And to make the whole thing weirder, he says his name, Zacchaeus. Now, can I ask you something? What's your conclusion if that happens to you? This is is going sideways from what you were expecting. Because Zacchaeus suddenly, I don't know how quickly this dawned on him, but he's he's a pretty sharp guy, and all of a sudden he realizes he knew I was going to be here. He knew it was going to be me. He saw me before I saw him. And he walks up and he just puts his finger right at me. Zacchaeus, you need to come down. I'm going to your, your home today. And he realizes, as Nathaniel realized when Jesus said, before you ever met me, I saw you. He realizes this This is the son of God. This is not just some traveling, you know, weird dude creating a spectacle. This is, this is, this is, this is, this is he. This is the one this is the Messiah. He knew I was going to be here. He ordained that I was going to be here. He saw it before I did. And that is the great thing about seeing Jesus. The great thing is not really to see Jesus. The great thing is to realize that long before you saw Jesus, you were seen by him. I cannot say this any better than Gerhardus Voss. He says, here is a look from which no man can hide himself the same look that saw our first parents behind the branches of those fateful trees and has since that hour, wherever sinners seek to conceal themselves, penetrated into the recesses of their guilt and shame, called them up from their depths of despair and brought them down from their heights of pride, a look from the eyes of the Lord, which are in all places and see the small no less than the great. We don't need to hesitate to affirm that this tax collector, though unaware of the fact, was there at his station by the appointment of Jesus and Zacchaeus sees it and his whole heart changes and the crazy thing is this king who is God in flesh the son of David the Messiah he wants to eat with Zacchaeus he says Zacchaeus you need to welcome me and implicit in that is that I welcome you I want you wretch that you are, corrupt man that you are. And it's just this call of grace. It's the call of the heart of God who has come to seek exactly these kind of people, to save these kind of people, to lay down his life in a little while in Jerusalem for these kind of sinners. It's not a surprise to me. Joel Green, in his commentary, hears thunderous echoes here of the prodigal son story. And so Zacchaeus is just kind of undone as it dawns on him, whom he has just encountered. And I wonder, you know, as he got down out of the tree, he's pretty excited. What went through this man's mind as he's now heading home to, to dinner and he's leading this one that he knows now is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King, because the faith of his father Abraham is now burning in his soul. He understands, he sees, I, I've, met the, I've met the serpent crusher, I've met, I've met the one that all of us Jews have been waiting for, and his world has just been turned absolutely upside down by this brief, brief little encounter. He's more humbled than he's ever been in his life. He knows that he has just been brought to the feet of the king, and he's a nobody. But he's also at the same time more exalted than he's ever been in his life because he knows that this king, has, he's coming to my home, he wants me. And I just wonder what kind of thoughts went through his mind as he's, you know, he gets home, dinner's ready, he's sitting across the table watching Jesus eat and enjoy the meal. And what, what's he thinking as he watches all of this? Well, we can get some idea of what he's thinking because in the middle of the festivities at that meal, all of a sudden Zacchaeus maybe tingles, tinks his glass and just without being bidden, without warning, he stands up. And he says, I, w- I want to go on record about something. I want to go on record about what I'm going to do in response to the grace of this king at this table. For start, I'm giving away half of my kingdom to feed the poor in the name of this king. And with the rest of my possessions, I'm going on record publicly before this entire throng, I'm going to more than restore every single person that I have wronged, anyone I have taken anything from, I'm going to go hunt them down and give them fourfold in return. This king has taken me to be his own. This is my pledge in response to him. My kingdom belongs to him, and I will repent of my sins, and I will put my money where my mouth is. I will take care of these people that I've robbed and stolen from. He lets go of his sin because he no longer wants his sin. He lets go of his stuff because he no longer needs his stuff. He's eating with the king. And it's not so hard to do this when you've been seen by this king. You remember that rich ruler in the last chapter? He could not do this. He couldn't let go because he did not believe in Jesus. Zacchaeus, faith burning in his heart. He knows who this this one is at his table. He believes in him. He knows what he's here to do. And he just, he lets go of it in a way that rich ruler could not do. He says, it's all yours, Jesus. Everything I have, it's yours. And again, you can sort of hear the laughter in Jesus' voice about this. He says, do you see this sinner? You see this wretch? he's Abraham's son too. And for this very purpose, I have come. The Son of Man is here to seek and save these kind of lost people. That's what this is about. And that work of grace in Zacchaeus prepares then for what Jesus says next about upside-down investments. So these two upside-down inclusions The kingdom turning things upside down, but then Jesus turns with that episode of Zacchaeus fresh in everyone's mind, and it kind of continues the story here, he starts to speak about upside down investments. Now listen very carefully, because if these inclusion stories, like the prodigal son story and the story of the lost coins and the lost sheep, they they very much emphasize the king's generosity, that he not only throws open his presence to sinners, but he, 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 welcomes them to feast with him and to be in fellowship with him. There's lots of generosity in those kind of stories, and we've seen that throughout Luke. But this parable seems to depict a certain severity in this king. Now, we've met this before, haven't we? Way back when Jesus sent, for the first time, he sent his disciples to be apostles, to be sent to join him in his mission, to minister to Israel with him, we noted this. That following this, this king, following Jesus, it always involves both the purest gift, free, open, grace. You don't pay for it. You don't repay it. He just throws the door open to sinners. He gives his own life to save sinners. F- pure gift, but that is always alongside of the intensest demand, the intensest demand. Because those of us who have received the generosity of this king, we are expected by him. It is non-negotiable that we join him in sharing that generosity. You are not a follower of Jesus if you do not do that. So there is the purest gift and the intensest demand. And, be, and we can give freely. We can serve willingly because we've freely received and been served by this king. So the two things are always together. And the same idea... Of pure gift and intense demand. They're presented to the disciples here in terms of investing. Investing. Because, like this nobleman, Jesus is about to go away and he's about to receive a kingdom. He's about to receive a throne. And then he's going to return, like this, ki- like this nobleman, he's going to return now as then as king to, to pour out judgment on his enemies who have rejected his rule. The, the enemy, uh, the, the, the slaughter of the enemies there in chapter 19, verse 27, that slaughter of the enemies is undoubtedly, again, picturing the destruction of the city of Jerusalem when after he has been raised from the dead and gone back to the Father, Jesus will come as the ascended Messiah and he will pour out judgment through the Roman armies on this city, this generation that killed him. So that's clearly what's being pictured there. But meanwhile, between the king receiving his kingdom and returning to judge his enemies, in that period between, these disciples of Jesus, they are supposed to invest everything Jesus has given them. I wonder if the minas actually picture the gifts that Jesus gave to these disciples at Pentecost remember shortly after he goes back to the Father and receives his kingdom, the the gifts of Pentecost and the manifold gifts of the Spirit, they are to take those gifts that the king gives them and they are to to recklessly invest those gifts in ministering the gospel to their countrymen and then to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth by word and deed, minister the, the love of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom because Jesus wants to have abundant returns from their stewardship. That's what they're to do. But in this story, you will notice, there's one servant who refuses. And I think this servant is the focus of the story. I think the focus of this parable is not on the faithful servants. I don't even think it's on the enemies who are finally destroyed. They're barely mentioned. The focus does seem to be on this one servant, who is a real servant. I mean, there's, we're not told that this servant is destroyed eventually with the enemies. But this servant will not invest and do you notice why he says to his lord in verse 21 i didn't invest your money because i'm afraid of you because you're severe you take what you didn't deposit you reap what you did not sow this lord and it's picturing jesus he takes what he did not personally deposit he reaps what he did not personally invest, did not personally sow. And this servant looks at this arrangement and he says, I, I'm not interested in this kind of I'm not interested in this kind of arrangement. I want to live in a kingdom where the guy who does the depositing gets what he deposited in the end. I want to live in a kingdom where the one who goes out and sows all the seed gets to reap everything he has sowed. That's the kind of kingdom I want to live in. And this is just lame. Basically, what the servant is saying is, I want to live in my own kingdom. Where I do the work, I get the profits. Now, i want to ask you, Bible scholars, there's one small problem with that. And what's the problem? And the Lord sets the record straight. What's the problem with that way of thinking about serving this king? I'm putting in all the work, depositing the money, and you're going to take the rewards? I'm putting in all the work, sowing the seed. You're going to take the harvest? What is the, what's the flaw in that whole line of reasoning? This, the Lord puts it this way. I take what you deposited, you wicked servant. I reap what you sowed because it's all mine. Where do you think you got what you invested? Whose seed did you sow? It's all mine. And if this servant does not feel that it is worth putting in any effort to invest, to put in you know, work for this Lord, he says, you might have at least just dropped it by the bank where it could earn interest for a few years until I return. Because it's my money. And what is awesome about this story is what this servant absolutely does not understand. Think about Zacchaeus. What this servant does not understand at all are the upside-down possibilities in a kingdom that is all grace. You and I, beloved, we have absolutely nothing that we did not receive. Do you realize that? You are sitting in a life right now. That life is a created gift of God. That's just the the gratuity of creation. Did you decide to exist? Did you decide to have the faculties you have? Did you decide the providences that have put you where you are with the opportunities and the resources you have? What do you have, Paul thunders in in his epistles, what do you have that God has not given to you? It's free gift. Everything you have is a gift of God. And he wants you to take what he has given you and invest all of it in serving him, and then this is where the grace just goes off the charts, so that in the end, this God who gave you all of this can so far out give you that the only question will ever be, why did I not give him more? Do you realize what this servant gets back on 10 measly minas? 10 cities to rule! Does that sound like a return on investment? Do you think God will short you in the end? This is the kingdom of grace. All of the stuff we invest is free from the Lord, and he is in... He is heaven-bent on taking whatever work we put in, whatever suffering we put in, whatever you know, labor and, and loss we invest for his kingdom to, to try to do something. This very little we put in, these little fish and bread that we have, God wants to multiply it and give us rule over cities in return. That's the kingdom. That's the king. And we live also In this interim period, between the arrival of Christ's kingdom and the final destruction of his enemies, how shall we live? I sat in my study this morning. It just moves me to tears how much I wish I could get this in y'all's heads and hearts. How much I wish as a pastor I could... Help you pit the upside down economics of God's kingdom against the natural expectations that this world drills into you every day. There is such a pull to treat your life as your own. You young people listening to me, there's such a pull to act like it's yours, to act like Jesus is a freaking app on your phone. He owns you and the phone. That's good news. And we resist, like this servant, sometimes the Lord's call, spend it all, all your time, all your gifts, all your opportunities, all your resources, just reckless spending for the Lord. And here's the question that you're gonna find that's gonna come up in your heart and every day the world will reinforce it. How could that ever produce flourishing? How could living as nothing more than a steward with nothing of my own Living, serving, investing every moment for somebody else. How could that be the good life? Is that not very hard? Is that not very severe? Doesn't that make you afraid like this servant? I know that. I know that. I feel it too. And the answer to that question is absolutely not. It is not severe. It is nothing to fear. If we're talking about this king. This God, this rewarder of those who seek him. Life for ourselves and for others comes precisely through not living for self, but living for God. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is what the world needs right now. The world right now needs a bunch of Christians with this blind man's eyes and the heart of Zacchaeus who watch the crowd rushing down that well-trod, boring path of living for self and who know with burning certainty that life lies in the other direction. And they have that certainty because they have tasted and they have seen by grace alone that this Lord is very, very, very good. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for leading us on this way with your Son. May it bear fruit in our hearts. In Jesus we pray. Amen.